Amen. You can grab a seat. How good does that feel to sing some songs to God together again as the people of God? And for those of you who this is your first time at Auburn Community Church, I want to say a huge welcome to you. You picked a great Sunday uh, to make it your first time here because for all of us, this kind of feels like a first. And as we're lifting up those songs of praise to God, I'm just thinking about every individual that's in this room right now and how for all of you, I have no idea what 2020 has meant for you individually. I have no idea what you're carrying walking into a space like this. But I believe wholeheartedly that in this moment, it is more important for us to be together as the people of God singing as one than it is for us to be separated and spaced out as great of a season as that was. And I want to continue to acknowledge and recognize that there are people participating in the life of our church, lots of them, probably more of them than are physically coming today online. And that's not, that's not like a second string way of going about being a part of ACC. Like that's going to be a part of our church for the long haul. But our elders and our prayer team just leaning into God and going, okay, God, what's your timetable for when you would have us open this building? This was more of a spiritual decision than anything else. As we near the end of a year where people are desperate and divided and angry and hurting and sick and for many totally broken and at the end of themselves, we felt like it's more important for the world that we're called to serve that our doors be open and that they stay closed. And so just your showing up today and standing behind us in that means a lot. Um, you know, I have like a really sensitive message that I'm about to preach. And I just told God, like, God, please don't let them judge me for how many times I cry today. And I know I've been doing that a lot in the online gathering. But let's just be honest. All of us shed tears last week as 50 people were baptized and shared their story. It's so amazing so cool to be a part of this move of God. And if you want more information about our church, you can find it online. Uh, you can find it on social media. I, I want to give you an update on so many things. I want to update you on the land and got a lot of questions about, hey, like it was cool getting to meet and baptize people out there, but we're going to put a building there soon. Um, what, what's going on with that? And, and uh, circumstances of this year have caused that and many other things just to be totally up in the air and go, God, what do you have for us next? And we'll keep you updated on that as we know. I want to continue to encourage you to worship God through the giving of tithes and offerings. And this is going to look a little different the way we do bringing time. We call it bringing time because we don't believe we're giving God anything. We're just bringing back to him what he has entrusted to us. And so you can do that on Venmo. You can do that online. You can actually do that in this room, but we're not going to pass the buckets. We're going to have buckets on the way out of every door that you're going to walk out if you want to give cash or check today. But we believe that that is an act of worship to God. That is an act of availability to him. And that action that some of you are taking financially is the same one I want you to take spiritually in this moment. So as you're giving to God in this moment or as you're deciding in your heart what you want to give, I want you to decide whether or not you're in a position to receive the word that God's going to speak in this moment. And, I'm, and I mean like truly mean that. Like we've gone through a lot this year. We've gone through a lot this weekend. Last night was tough. And, and so we're all in this moment together. But I want us to kind of put off everything else that we have going on and just be present for this moment. And if you need to put your phone on airplane mode right now, you can do that. If you need to just create the space as I pray to go, God, speak to me. I want to encourage you to do that. 
Heavenly Father, open our hearts and our eyes and our minds to discern everything that you're about to say. We love you. We don't want to miss one word. God, we need the truth of your word in a world of lies like never before. So speak powerfully through your word. Convict people where they need to be convicted. Comfort people where they need to be comforted. Encourage people where they need to be encouraged. God, if you got to step on toes, step on toes. If you got to throw your arms around someone, would you do that? I can't do all of those things through well-crafted words. But by your spirit, God, I believe you can. So come and do it. Move, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I am ready to preach to you. I'm very mindful about what our church needs to hear in particular seasons. And so the past few months of online, just living in things like fresh wind and pivot and all the things that I think we needed for individual moments was so cool. But I've been circling the end of this year on my calendar like, God, what is the, what is the thing that you want to say to your people? And at ACC, we believe every sermon needs to be rooted in Scripture, but there's many different ways to go about that. So we just did a series on the Holy Spirit, and we were all over the Bible in every single one of those talks. But I felt like for this season, we needed to walk slowly through a letter in the New Testament that speaks exactly to where I think our church is right now and exactly to where our country is. It is arguably the most theologically rich and concise letter ever written. For some of you, this is your favorite book of the Bible. For most of you, this is the book of the Bible that you actually have the most amount of verses memorized. But before I tell you what it is, if you have your Bible, hold it up. Oh, come on! The Bibles are back at Auburn Community Church. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians. Yeah, you can come back later tonight if you want an official Bible drill. I told the young people to come to the night services to open up more space. We're going to be talking about Ephesians. And I want to give you a quick breakdown of this before we start reading some verses. As I said, Ephesians is loaded with verses that you probably memorized. You've been saved by grace through faith is in Ephesians. God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, is in Ephesians. The full armor of God is in Ephesians. The greatest passage in the whole Bible about Christian marriage is in Ephesians. Ephesians is locked and loaded with haymaker after haymaker of truth from God's word. It is like a fire hydrant of how to live as a Christian in this world. And honestly, walking verse by verse through this book, I'm not even going to be able to do this book justice for all that needs to be talked about in the book of Ephesians. But I want to give you a background on this because when you open the word of God, you really need to know if you can know who wrote something and why they wrote it. So Ephesians was written 2,000 years ago to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is a port city in modern-day Turkey. I just got to tell you, this is so strange for me mentally. <laughs> like, even in this moment, I'm like, where am I scanning? These are real people. This is not theoretical. This is awesome. This can take some adjustment throughout the day today. <laughs> Ephesus is a port city in modern-day Turkey. It's arguably the second most important city in the Roman Empire. Big commerce city, big travel city, and it's also a multi-ethnic city. And so when Paul starts a church there, it's very strategic that a church would be there, but it's also very multi-ethnic, very multicultural, and a lot of different people from different backgrounds who have different ideas, different visions politically, different family backgrounds are all coming together at the same church. And so Paul has a very close relationship with this church, but when he sits down to write Ephesians, he has a very specific purpose for writing. And I want to give you that purpose 
I got this from seminary and I've just held on to it every time I read Ephesians and I want you to write it down. I like writing it like underneath the title of the book that I'm reading just so I always have a frame for why was this written? Here's why Ephesians was written. Ephesians was written to reconcile Jew and Gentile tension by illustrating unity with Christ. To reconcile Jew-Gentile tension by illustrating unity with Christ. So 2,000 years ago, this is the very beginning of this movement that we call Christianity. And when Jesus comes and opens up salvation for all people, not just the chosen people of God under Father Abraham, Israel, but all people are able to profess faith in Jesus and come to saving faith, you got heavy tension between two different groups. The Jews who have hereditary ties to Abraham are going, listen, we're the real people of God. We're related by blood to Father Abraham. You guys just kind of got in late, and we're the ones who are kind of the special people of God. And you can see how the Gentiles would be put off by this and how the Gentiles Gentiles might respond right back at them and say, listen, the only reason why we're invited in the people of God in the first place is because you guys messed it up again and again and again. For thousands of years, you fell into idolatry. For thousands of years, you missed it. And now we got grafted into the family of God. So thank you for messing up. This is our time now. And at this point, what Paul is going to do is by illustrating the family that Jesus brings everybody into, he's going to talk about how unity with Christ and in Christ causes all people to operate in relationships with each other and to God from a state of humility and not a state of pride. So in case you missed all of that, this is the perfect letter for right now in the United States of America. It's the perfect letter for the church of Jesus Christ right now, just to be reminded that the people of God function as one family unified in Christ. And when we come to understand the grace that we've been shown and welcomed in the family of God, it's going to change the way we relate to each other. And so I'm going to read 14 verses. I'm going to go in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. If you're there, say, I'm there. Before I read this, can you just look at the person next to you and say, I'm so glad I sat next to you in church today. This is just so good to be together. Oh, man. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. How many of you know that the position that God places you in is irrevocable because he's the one who placed you there? Paul's going, I didn't get this position because I earned it. I got this position because it was given to me. When God calls you, your strength is not in your ability or your faithfulness. It's in God's faithfulness. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm about to read verses 3 through 14, and I just want you to know this is one sentence in Greek. Okay? You ready? One sentence. Here we go. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. 
In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Wow. What a start to a letter. It's interesting that Paul would jump into this kind of content so fast because when Paul has a strong relationship with the church, he usually spends more time on the introduction. He usually says hey to a few people. He usually makes it more personal. He jumps right in, and I believe that's the case because Paul has an urgent message for this church. And I believe there's a part of him that just can't wait to get out all that God has placed on the inside of him. And he says this. Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. If you need some good news in 2020, there it is. God is your dad who has blessed you with every possible blessing he could give you in Jesus. God is a heavenly father who has not withheld one thing that is good that he could possibly give you because of who Jesus is. And so he starts with a promise that's basically like God is your dad and any possible spiritual blessing that is yours, he has poured out on to you. And watch this. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. If you need a title, there it is. The title of this sermon, and I believe the heading over this entire series is going to be two words, glorious grace. Can you say that? Glorious grace is so good. And this whole passage is so rich, but it's a little bit of a tragedy because throughout the history of this, of the church, this passage has actually brought more tension and conflict than it has brought comfort because of a theological debate that rages on to this day. See, people usually don't read these verses to find comfort and healing and restoration and a safe place. People usually find these verses to argue a theological argument about how God saves people. And if you don't know much about the history of the church, there's this debate that goes on about how God saves people between people who believe in what is called free will and people who believe in what is called predestination. You're like, whoa, this is where you're going. First sermon back. Not my decision. I follow someone who does crazy things. And so there's this debate that rages on. And, and people who believe in free will say things like, listen, for love to be love, God has to give us a choice. So we choose between God and other options. And when Jesus makes himself known to us, we choose him and we're saved because of our choice to come into faith in God. And people who believe in predestination look at passages like this one and they go, listen, we were chosen before the foundation of the world. There is no decision that we can make today that can change the plan of God. God is sovereign. We just need to go with it. We just need to deal with it. And it's like, I want to talk to both sides in different ways. And first of all, address the people who, who are kind of on team free will and go, hey, did you read what was just said here? When I talk to people who say things like, well, I don't believe in predestination. I'm like, you can't just take something in the Bible that doesn't line up with your previous conception of who God is and ignore it. You can work it out, and you can learn more about it, and you can press into it, but you can't ignore it. You can't do that with anything in the Bible, by the way. And so to those who say that, I just want to go open your mind to the fact that God might be different than you assume that he is, and it might be better that way. 
But to those who are on the other side, usually when you talk to somebody who's heavy predestination, they're a little angry about it. And, and, and I want to talk to them, and like, we were chosen before the foundation of the world. There's nothing that could be done today that can change that. I want to be like, first of all, calm down. Second of all, when your doctrine makes you arrogant and hateful toward other people, your doctrine becomes wrong. And you need to actually understand the fact that God is more about the heart than he is about the mind. It's your heart that changes your mind over time, and our mind is renewed. And to those, I would just say free will has an amazingly valuable part of our story on planet Earth. Prayer matters. Your choices matter. In fact, the choices that you make today are building the life that you sit in in the future. God has absolutely opened up the ability for human beings to make choices. And so on both sides of those things, there's things that I want to say to each one to go, listen, you need to understand this and you need to understand this. But the main thing I want to say is when Paul sat down to write Ephesians, he wasn't thinking about a debate between two theological perspectives. Like 2,000 years ago, Paul wasn't going, you know what I want to do? I want to solve that whole argument about whether or not God chooses us or we choose him. I just want to sit down and make things really clear real quick. No, remember, what was his purpose? His purpose was to take two groups of people who are literally about to divide and run away from each other and go, listen, you're unified in Jesus. And his roadmap for unifying them is called humility. Because the only way to take two sides that can't see eye to eye and bring them together is to humble them. Anybody watch presidential debate this week? It was a lot there. A lot. One thing missing, humility. And you can tell when it's missing. You can tell, like, it doesn't matter what is said this way or this way. If nobody has the human ability to bend their pride and arrogance to the level of being able to connect with another human being, all you're going to have is bubbling tension. And so here's what Paul's doing. This is so beautiful. Paul is using one of the most well-crafted sentences in the history of the world to humble two different groups. Now, you probably didn't see this when you first read it. And I've read Ephesians multiple different times. And if I did not go to seminary on this particular book of the Bible, I would not even know this. So I'm not up here as the spiritual expert, but when my eyes were opened to what Ephesians 1 is really all about, I never saw it the same way. If you have your Bible open, you need to look at it. Look at verse 3. I want you to watch how often Paul uses phrases like us and we. Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Here's a question. Who's us? And you read it and you're, you're like Christians. Like the, the church in Ephesus and Paul. He's, he's talking to everybody in that church and he's talking about himself. Us. It's a we thing. And that's what he wants you to think. Watch verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. Verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Look at verse 8. That he lavished on us. Look at verse 9. He made known to us. Look at verse 10. To be put into effect when the, time reached, when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things. So there's this we us language that's existing for unity. Now watch verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything. Verse 12, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Now watch this. Watch this pivot. Watch this shift. Verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. He's got a whole chapter of we, 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 us, us. This is ours. And then you also. Who's you also? 
Gentiles. See, what nobody saw that Paul was doing at the beginning of that passage was he was only talking to Jews. And he's going, we are the first to put our faith in Christ. We are the ones. We, we, we. And you also got in on this later. Why does he do that? To humble both sides. I'll show you how. He's humbling the Gentiles because he's including them later so that they go, oh, wait, you weren't even talking about us? And Paul's going, no, I wasn't talking about you. Because honestly, you're blessed to just be here as a Gentile. We are the ones who have the promises. We are the ones who are chosen. We are the ones who are predestined. And you got brought in on this when you believed and God gave you the Holy Spirit and included you in on this family. So yes, everything that was said about the Jews is true about the Gentiles now in Jesus. But Paul just wants them to know this wasn't even true about you until right now. So they're humble. Well, you're like, how does he humble the other side? He humbles the other side by pointing out the fact that nothing about them is the reason why they were chosen other than the goodness of God. He's like, you are predestined. You are chosen. This did not have anything to do with your ability, your obedience, your looks, or something that God found special about you. It was all his divine election. Oh, I want to talk about election in 2020. I want to talk about how God, when he makes a choice, he makes it before the foundation of the world and goes, mine. And that has nothing to do with your goodness or obedience or behavior and everything to do with who I am. And so what he's trying to do, he's trying to get both groups to put down their weapons and go, hey, nobody has any room to boast about anything. You guys got in late. You guys got in because God is good. Put your weapons down and let's talk about Jesus. And let's talk about the glorious grace of God. Paul is disarming division with this thing called humility. I believe we're in a cultural moment together as a church where God genuinely and sincerely wants a church like ours to exist in true humility to God. We will miss what God has for us this year, church, if we don't truly become humble and dependent at the foot of the cross. And so there's a lot that we're going to read in Ephesians over the course of the next few weeks. It's going to deal with some really practical issues. In fact, the Sunday before the election, we're going to land on the moment where Paul literally talks about both groups and how they've been brought together in one family, and it's beautiful in Ephesians chapter 2. But before we get there, I believe today as we reopen our building, today is about getting people to fall on their face humbly before God. And whether or not you do that physically today, I hope that every single person who comes to our church today does that spiritually. And here's what's interesting about me saying that's the vision for today. That's the vision for today, and it's totally impossible for any song or sermon or preacher to do. If your heart gets humbled before God, it is only because God got you to that position. Because the Holy Spirit got you to that position. Why? Because humility is not a character trait that you develop. Humility is the byproduct of a glimpse of God. So you don't work on humility. You don't stand in front of a group of people and go, hey, don't, don't sound too boastful. Don't sound too arrogant. Okay, i got to manage how I sound. No, humility is something that happens in your heart. And it's something that happens as a response to seeing the goodness of God. And in this passage, if you look close enough with me, I want to teach you about being brought into the family of God. I want to simply preach the gospel to you in this moment and remind those of you who are Christians the promises that are yours in Jesus and tell those of you who are not Christians that you have an opportunity to believe in Jesus today. You have an opportunity to fall on your face and maybe collectively we as a church will walk away from this day not just hyped up because we got to meet together in a building again, But humble before God and going, God, you have my heart, you have my agenda, you have my plans, you have my stuff, you have myself, I'm yours. I want to show you the most humbling doctrine in all of the Bible, and it's called adoption. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. 
verse 4. In love, he predestined us. So if you're still weird about predestination, I want you to know this is what God predestined. This is, this is what he did. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through, Christ, through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Why is it that Paul's illustration for showing us why we should be humbled in the family of Jesus, why does he go adoption? Because I believe adoption is the most beautiful, humbling picture of a parent's choice to pull a child into their family and call them their own, regardless of any behavior or choice that they made. I want to talk about adoption. I want to talk about something that several, many families in our church have said yes to. And I could tell you about each one. I could tell you the stories. I could tell you about the Fickners and Ina and Ilga. I could tell you about Ben and Emily Phillips who adopted their baby boy, Oliver, just a little while ago. I could talk about Michael and Tatum Fagan and their baby that's now a part of their family that wasn't a part of their family when church was going on in person just a few months ago. And another young man who they've taken into their home. I could talk all about the Herrings who are here this morning who have two adopted kids and one biological daughter. And I literally thought about profiling each one of these families and going one by one and going, this is this family. This is their story. And if I didn't mention your family and you do have an adoption story, trust me, that matters. And that's awesome. I wanted to tell you each like little detail of how it happened and how God orchestrated it and how that relates to how God adopted you. But there was this one family story that I think was the clearest picture of what God was doing in this moment and what he wants to say to you. And so I want to tell you the story of the Hansi family in our church. I want to tell you about Anna and Jeffrey Hansi. Uh, Anna and Jeffrey adopted their baby girl, Sophie May, from China at the end of 2019, the beginning of 2020. So they're literally in China as COVID is raging right before everything blows up in the States. It's insane. But they actually have three kids of their own. In fact, can we show the picture of them in China when they, when they first got there, when they adopted her? Go ahead and show that first picture. So here they are. It's Jeffrey and Anna, their daughter Henley, who was baptized last Sunday at the 10 a.m. service. You got Lydia, you got Brooks, but that's Sophie May from China. Sophie May was found when they estimate she was about 17 days old and taken into an orphanage and eventually placed with a foster care family. But her life changed forever when she was adopted by this family. Can we show the one of uh, her in her like pajamas with the kids? Because it's like one of my favorite ones over in China. Yeah, how awesome is that? So cute. She was adopted at the end of 2019 and brought home to do things like go shopping at Target. Do we have that picture? I think we do. Thank you, Jesus. And she's been a part of their family for the better part of this year. I wanted you to have a visual picture of who I'm talking about as I tell you this story. Now, what's so beautiful about this is that Sophie May lives across the world, has parents who abandoned her, is left in a way that she doesn't even understand at the time to fend for herself. And across the world, God, in a supernatural way, convicts the hearts of this family and says, you actually have another member of your family that's going to require a lot of faith and going to require a lot of resources and going to require a big sacrifice. And you're going to have to fly over and go and get her and bring her back home. And her life changes forever because her parents decide, you know what we're going to do? We're going to adopt. We're going to adopt her. You can go back to the title slide. I want to tell you something and this offends you, it's okay. I just want you to know this. 
It's not unloving of God to not ask you about adopting you. It's not unloving of God to come and get you before you were even a thought in your parents' mind. It's not unloving of God to adopt you before he created one star or fish. You want to know why it's not unloving? Because adoption is the ultimate act of love that requires superseding the will to make it complete. No one would look at that and go, Jeffrey, Anna, what are you thinking? Like, you didn't even consult this girl about whether or not she wanted to be in your family. You didn't even come to her and at least give her the option of staying in her home country. Don't you know that's where she's from? Don't you know she's going to have a lot of difficulty adjusting to her new life over here? No. Anyone who sees that situation would go, the most loving thing you ever did for her is fly across the world, go grab her, go give her your name, go call her a member of your family before she makes one decision, before she says anything. And we don't look at that and go, oh, you took away her choice. We look at that and go, you gave her a new life. You gave her a new identity. That's the most loving thing you could do in the entire universe. And now she exists with a brand new opportunity at life, with brand new access to the gospel, and a brand new identity as a child of God. And she gets all the benefits of what it means to be called a member of the Hansi family. And so you want to know why the grace is called glorious grace? It's called glorious grace because God's grace is more glorious when it's all God doing it and us saying thank you. Grace is more glorious when it's about the one who completes salvation, not the one who benefits from it. So listen, God actually enjoys going further to adopt you. Grace becomes more beautiful when the level of grace it took to get you back gets higher. So some of you are here today and you're going, we're singing these songs and he's preaching this sermon. I don't know a lot about Ephesians. I'm way too sinful to be around these people as we open this building that they haven't been meeting in for a while. And I want to let you know, no, no, no. You're not the one who needs to ignore what I'm saying. You are like the direct candidate, like the reason why Jesus did what he did. And it actually makes grace more beautiful for you to be more lost and desperate and dead. Because here's the thing. When Jesus brought about your adoption into God's family, he didn't make you a better person. He didn't make you a Christian in the Bible belt. He took you from being a dead orphan to alive in a new family with a father who's given you every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's what he did. And so it becomes more glorious if it's more God. And it becomes more glorious if it's less about what you and I bring to the table. Paul said this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love that. Christ didn't die for us after we agreed to pray a three-step prayer. While we were yet sinners, while we were still lost, there was a girl who got baptized last week who said, this is a trustworthy saying, Christ died to save sinners of whom I am the worst. She was quoting Paul. But the interesting thing about that is everybody who knows themselves well enough knows that that verse isn't about Paul or Gwen. That verse is about you if you know you. Too many of us grew up being obedient enough to the Ten Commandments and to our parents to really taste the glory of grace. The glory of grace comes from knowing God didn't just save you from the bad things that you did. He saved you from the sinful condition of a broken world that's not going to change without Jesus. Dead in your sin, alive in Christ. And I'm tearing up last week when Gwen is saying that because she's going, Christ died to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And it's the most humbling for me, I think, of anybody else in the field because I'm going, this is hilarious. I'm the spiritual leader of this huge field of people. And I'm the worst sinner in the field. And that that doesn't make God look bad. That makes God look awesome. Because he doesn't adopt 
lovely kids who were worth it. He adopts rebels and people who would never have any hope of a life without him. So I know Sophie May's cute, okay? <laughs> Spiritually speaking, without Jesus, you're not. And that, that's not to hate on you or to somehow glorify your sinfulness. That's to give you a level of humility. We've been saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. Why? So that no one can boast. God saved you like this so that it would make God look better, and you would have nothing to say. So you're like, Miles, but, but by grace through faith, what about faith? Well, you're right. Faith is involved. Faith is agreeing that God does all the saving. So it's not God does 99% and my faith is the other one. My faith is the agreement that God did 100 my faith is the acknowledgement, you did it all. And I'm not just going to waver in unbelief and say no to the gift that you've completed by grace. No, I believe your grace is glorious. And by saying yes to it, I'm just acknowledging that you adopted me before I even existed. And, and, and when we start talking about these deep theological things like this, I know all the follow-up questions. Well, then, wait a minute, why do we preach the gospel if God's going to save people anyway? Why do, why, why do we do this? Why do we do this? But what we do when we do that is we start looking into the mysterious things of the will of God and not delighting in what has been revealed. God did not call you to figure out the why and the when and the what of everything you, he did. He called you to trust that you're in his family and obey his word because he's your father. So there are some things that are a mystery, and there are some things that are not clear. We're obedient to the scriptures because we're now children of God. But we don't supersede that by some sort of level of thinking that causes us to not take responsibility for the life that we've lived. I want people to be humble today. And so I got three things that glorious grace causes in your life straight from this passage. And I told you my hope and my prayer is that all you do at the end of this is go, wow, God, I just want to fall on my face and say thank you because that has nothing to do with me and everything to do with you. It's called glorious grace. Somebody say glorious grace. Glorious grace means three things for you today. I got three points, church. We're back to a real Sunday at ACC, and I got three points. Glorious grace gives you, number one, confidence. Somebody say confidence. Humility is the opposite of arrogance, not confidence. Confidence is something that is the byproduct of knowing who your dad is. So when you read this in, in verse 7, look at this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. In Ephesians, Paul loves to talk about God as your father being rich. Which doesn't make a lot of sense because you're like, he's God. He owns everything. But Paul acknowledges that there's this one thing that your heavenly father is absolutely loaded in. And it's called grace and mercy. And he says, listen, you've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. You should actually live your life with a level of confidence as you enter into the presence of God, not with a level of fear, because you know that if your father's natural disposition toward you is grace and mercy, you're welcome in the family of God. So here's what I want today. I want people who have had a terrible 2020. I want people trapped in addiction and bondage to pornography and alcohol. I want people who've gone back to old relationships. I want people who have gotten so scared and anxious they can't even be honest about it. I want people who are depressed and at the edge of taking their lives. I want you to know there can be a shift that happens today into this realm called confidence. And it's not because you're confident in yourself. It's because you know, I got a dad who's locked and loaded with enough mercy and grace to give me what I need. Come on, when you know that you didn't have a heavenly father and now you have one who just happens to have all of the mercy and forgiveness in the world, you're confident. This goes, this goes back into the Old Testament. God didn't become like this when Jesus showed up. God's always been like this. So when God reveals himself to Moses, he says things like, your God is 
full of compassion, slow to anger, and abounding with love and kindness, forgiving the sins of a thousand generations, but punishing sin to the third generation. To compare that, God's going, this is who I just naturally am. If God is everything we think he is, he forgives sin to a certain generation, and he punishes it to the same one. But when God says, I forgive, man, you're humble, you come to me, I'll forgive you and your family like forever, and I got you. You stay in your sin, you stay away from me, and I'll punish that sin to the third generation. And we hear that, and we go, see, he's so mean. He, like, gives people generational sin. What's wrong with God? I'm like, he's so rich in mercy. He is willing to, in a moment of humility, bestow a thousand years of love and kindness in a moment. That's just who he is. And when you go, you're a good, good father, it's who you are. You start to relate to other people and other things in your life on the basis of who your dad is. I thought about this one with, uh, with the Herring. So I told you, Will and Ashley Herring have adopted two kids. I brought a picture of their family, too, and their dog, who I'm not a, that big of a fan of. But um, <laughs> this is Reese, this is Maddie, and this is Isaiah. Maddie and Isaiah were both adopted. And I thought about, particularly Isaiah, how much he is going to grow up with a level of confidence that he wouldn't have had had he not been adopted by the Herrings because Will's his dad. You'll know this. Will played football here at Auburn and played in the NFL for the better part of a decade. Can you imagine the argument at the elementary school about whose dad wins in a fight? Yeah. <laughs> and everybody's coming with their credentials of what their dad does and what their dad has to offer. And Isaiah gets to stand there and go, my dad is Will Herring. You have nothing to say. So, when you're a child of God, you get to stand before circumstances and people and go, God's my dad. Like, I know who my dad is, and, and that sort of, in a supernatural way, makes me confident because I know how forgiven I am, but I also know how filled I am. And this is not a confidence that comes from my ability. It's a confidence that comes from my adoption. I am a child of God, and now I can face whatever. And now I can stare down the uncertainty of whatever you're facing today and go, okay. I might not know how it's all going to play out, but I know I can be confident because I know who my father is. Somebody say confidence. Glorious grace gives confidence. Number two, glorious grace gives assurance. Assurance. This one's uh, sensitive because as much as I answer questions from people who want to know about the will of God for their life, the most common second place question after that question is, how do I know I'm going to heaven? How do I know I'm saved? How can I be assured that I'm in the family of God? In fact, I got that question three different times on three different platforms from people after baptism Sunday. So notice this. After hearing 50 stories of life change and people who were broken and desperate and, and separated from God to seeing the supernatural power of Jesus to adopt them and their family, people are still walking away from a moment like that going, I don't want to go to hell. How do I know I'm not going to hell? How do I know for sure? Here's how you know for sure. You ready? Verse 11. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Now watch this. And you also. I love that. Somebody say, you also. It includes you. Were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who finalizes your adoption and sort of provides a, a down payment for the future. So how do I know that I'm saved? It's not by how obedient I have become. It's not about whether or not I was sincere at youth camp. It's about whether or not the Holy Spirit preaches on the inside of your heart and reminds you of your identity as a child of God. 
The Holy Spirit is the one who signifies assurance. So here's the ultimate assurance I can give you of your salvation. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit will see you through to the end to make sure you stay in Christ. Once saved, always saved, not because you're obedient enough, but because God's faithful enough. Now, the key in all of that is the phrase, in Christ. I actually think we should label ourselves as in Christ more than we say Christian. Because Christianity in America comes with all these cultural connotations. I think we should say, yeah, I'm in Christ. I'm in, I'm in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means putting your faith and trust that you will follow him, that you believe he died, that you believe he rose, and you want to spend your life following him. So the worst thing I could do as your pastor is promise you that you're going to heaven if you are, in fact, going to hell. And so I want to get in front of you today and go, clearly, crystal clear, if you are not in Christ, you go to hell, separated from God forever. If you are in Christ, all of these promises are yours. How do I get in Christ? It's a humble act of the heart. You know right now if the Holy Spirit of God is opening your eyes to what I'm saying right now. And you know right now if you're closed off to everything I'm saying right now, going, I don't agree with this guy, I don't agree with this theology, I don't agree with this. Listen, I promise you if I could be doing something else, I would. I'm, I'm, especially this year, I'm only up here because God has clearly said over my life, you can't do anything else, you have to do this. And I'm just telling you what this book says, I'm telling you this book is true. It's annoyingly true. You'll find it in your life. You're like, I try to run from this, and it just becomes more true in my experience. If you place your faith and trust in Jesus and surrender your life to him, you can be assured you are saved. And that's not going to change next week if you make the biggest mistake of your life. It's not going to change a year from now if you start doubting your faith. It's not going to change 50 years from now when a circumstance hits you that, you that you didn't know was coming. You can have assurance today. You're going to heaven forever as an adopted child of God to enjoy your inheritance in the family of God. We'll talk about that in a second. And there's nothing that can happen today that could change that or tomorrow or in this universe. What does that make you do? It makes me proud of my performance. No. It makes you stand in awe makes you worship, makes you praise, makes you bow. Somebody say confidence. Somebody say assurance. Last one and I'm done. Inheritance. Inheritance. When you get adopted into a new family, you get all the rights and privileges of what it means to carry that name. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God is a good dad who enjoys giving good gifts to his kids. And I only know in part what this is like. I have these moments with Anderson and Elliot all the time. I have one daughter who's soon to turn four and another daughter who's soon to turn two. And I got to tell you, the, the response I watch from her receiving a gift that I give her that's not reflective of her behavior lately, it's just reflective of the fact that I'm her dad, brings me the utmost joy. This week... My wife spilled salt all over the kitchen table. I'm sorry, I'm shaming you. Um, and, and so because of an accident, Aniston was like offering to help. She said, let me go get the vacuum cleaner. It's like the little one. She loves going to get it. She goes into this room and she accidentally comes across this bag of new costumes that we were going to give her this weekend. And when, so when she comes back, she doesn't come back with the vacuum. She comes back with this bag of presents. She goes, mommy, daddy, what is this? exactly what she does and I'm like I didn't even mean for you to get that one yet but you know what I'm delighted to open it in this moment and let you have it because I'm your dad God is a relational heavenly father who never runs out of the joy that comes from his saints experiencing good gifts 
God wants to gift you with his presence today. He wants you to gift you with his goodness. And you're, this is what I want to tell you. You're not like pulling his arm to get him to do that. He's the one who initiated your adoption before you existed. He enjoys drawing you in. I want to finish right here. When you believed, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is like earnest money on eternity. Do you see that? Gave a deposit. I'll give you my spirit, and that's just like a little bit of what I'm going to give to you eternally. And you hear that as a child of God, and you hear that you have this glorious inheritance, and there's a part of you that's like, my God is dad, and he owns everything. What am I going to inherit, and how much stuff am I going to get? But it's at that point that you start to miss the point. Because the greatness of our inheritance in God is not about the stuff that we will inherit. It's about the one who we get to call father. Prodigal son gets his inheritance early, runs home after ruining his life, partying, spending his life on immorality, wanting pig food. His sorrow leads him back home. What does he say when he gets home? He doesn't say, dad, I messed up and I need more money hugs his dad because he's going, dad, I need you. Your greatest inheritance as a child of God is the father who bankrupted heaven to get you back. And so I think back to um, late 2019, I got invited to this prayer party over the Hansies the night before they were leaving to go get Sophie May. And it's interesting to get invited to a prayer party because it's always all women and I'm there because I'm a pastor, I have to be. And so, you know, I'm kind of hanging out with Jeffrey and we're looking at a picture of Sophie May and I'm looking at their house and all these suitcases and all this effort and sacrifice and the tumultuous time that it is. And all these women are there praying over Anna, but I got the opportunity to pray over Jeffrey. And I thought about this picture of he's literally packing up his entire family, flying over there just to get this little girl into his arms and there is nothing that is ever going to stop this father from bringing his child home i want you to see this moment in china flies over from america to go you're mine and we don't go home if you don't come home with us and when she gets back home she's got a new name she's got a lot of new toys I've seen some. She's got a whole new identity and a new life, but you wanna know the greatest new thing she has? She has a new dad. And it's in that context that I want you to look into heaven today and know you have a God who is never going to give up pursuing you. We sing songs about the God who wouldn't stop at any wall that was in the way. He'll kick it down. He wouldn't stop at any shadow. He'll light it up. He'll do whatever it takes to get you back. In this moment, I just want you to know that same God is speaking to you right now. And that same God wants you to stand in awe in this moment. Come on, would you stand to your feet all over this place? We're going to sing those truths out loud together as a church. And if you want to fall before God, you can turn this space into an altar up here. If you just need to cry your eyes out and remember that God is your loving, relational, heavenly father, you do that. Or better yet, if you've never said yes to a relationship with God, now is that moment. Would you bow your head all over this room?
I want those of you who have never said yes to a relationship with Jesus to say yes right now. And I want you to know this. God's not going to save you because you're going to say yes to him. You're going to say yes to God because God already saved you. You pray this simple prayer. Jesus, I give you my life. I'm yours. Take it all. God, I thank you in this moment for people who are discovering who you call them as members of your family. I pray in Jesus' name that a humbling level of confidence in your glorious grace would lead us into reconciliation with other people, would lead us into being the church you're calling us to be. And God, I just bow before you right now and ask you that you would cover our church with a level of presence from the power of your Holy Spirit that none of us have ever really known, physically or spiritually, that we would walk in the gifts that you have given us, that we would walk up confidently to people who need to know they don't have to spend the rest of their lives as orphans. They can come into your family today because Jesus has done it all. God, would your simple gospel message lead us to praise and adoration? And will we leave here today never the same? God, I love you so much. I love this church. I love every person in front of me right now, and I just don't want them to miss it. I pray that as the Spirit is convicting and prompting, that they would say yes. Please, God, let them surrender and say yes. We love you. We sing this song to you to remember your love that never gives up. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.